This podcast is sponsored by PNR Publishing. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear about Leland Riken's highly anticipated new book, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year, available now at prpbooks.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm one of the hosts, Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my friend and co-host, who serves at, let me get this correct, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg in the great state of Virginia. Is that correct? Absolutely. That is perfect. Fantastic. That is perfect. Seven years, I've got this. You've got it. After me living here seven years and you being actually to the church around six times or so you've indeed uh, and i've actually been it. into your house which is like a <laughs> once i got past the front door it's a very rare privilege yeah. uh, it's because my wife was home that you were actually allowed in so and of course i was dressed in overalls pretending to be the hvac man and she That's let right. me in under false pretenses. Right. Mm-hmm. we thought you'd have so, a good product to sell so yeah yeah, yeah. and anyway, on today's program I want to talk about a slightly offbeat subject, I guess, uh, compared to some of the other things that we've dealt with, and that's the the importance or not of reading literature in the life of the Christian, not simply the pastor, but but Christians in general. Todd, let me kick this off with a provocative question, Mm -hmm. a provocative statement. If I read a novel, am I not reading a lie? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't give you any advance warning of that one, but that's right, the question I right. Well, um, I, I guess I would I would kind of counter that with um, another statement of uh, if if a pastor tells a parable, um, is he lying? Oh yes, most definitely. <laughs> I think he should be. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah the I, genre I, issue. I think you're pointing to the genre issue there. That's right. Yeah, and and so you know, there's uh, first of all, I would say there's something entirely legitimate about illustrating certain truths by telling, uh, you know, by giving illustrations or telling parables or, or good stories uh, uh, that did not literally happen. And I and I would say that there's something um, salutary. Uh, maybe several things that are salutary about Christians reading um, good fiction. Now, my guess, Carl, is that your question um, arises out of uh, an actual objection that some would probably level at the whole category of fiction. Am I right in assuming that? Probably. Yes. In in the past, I've encountered... This sounds patronizing. I don't mean in a patronizing way, mm-hmm. but I was saying good, well-meaning Christians, yes, often of a more fundamentalist kind mm-hmm. of bent than myself, yeah. who have a genuine worry that uh, right. Christians reading literature are, are likely to be led astray. That they're, right. they're indulging deception in some mm-hmm. way. And unlike you, my, my response has typically been, 
the kind of the genre response here. There's, there's a, nobody reads you know, one of my favourite novels. We talked about it before the show began. Uh, nobody reads Jude the Obscure and thinks Jude the Obscure really happened. So in actual fact, there is that reading strategy that right from the start, we're, we're not reading this as something that really happened. Right. We're reading it for other reasons, knowing that it is a, a piece of constructed literature. Right. emerging from the pen of, of Thomas Hardy. So I have, I have encountered it, and, I, uh, and I, I've also heard it said uh, on a couple of occasions that the decline in church attendance in the West correlates with the rise of popularity of the novel. I think that's a little bit more of a stretch. Uh, well, uh, I have, that's one I actually have heard. Interesting. And I, and I agree with you that I, that I think it's a stretch. Um, I, there are um, functions of modernity to some extent, but I don't yeah. think there's a cause and effect relationship yeah. between the two. Uh, another common objection, and and this this would I I, I think just because just from my own anecdotal experience, this is a, a, a more common objection is that um, fiction is in, entertainment and it's frivolous, and therefore Christians uh, should not invest so much time in something that is frivolous and entertaining. As, as reading a novel, what would be your response to that? Well, I, I think in responding to that, I'd want to, to develop a, a broader concept of the purpose of frivolity and entertainment, I suppose, within mm. the Christian life. And I would say if you go to somewhere like Ecclesiastes, for example, one can find good justification there for enjoying life, that not everything mm. has to be 100% total self-conscious, self-sacrificial devotional exercise that there is a richness to life that's reflected in having a glass of wine with friends good conversation uh, reading a book uh, yeah. watching a movie reading a poem those kind of things so there's a richness to human life i think where we err is when those things become central and, and i like mm -hmm. pascal's blaise pascal's take on entertainment where he he makes the point that uh, there's a danger that, that entertainment can become a god and become overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing wrong after a hard day's work with a, a, a peasant uh, enjoying a dance. He's thinking right. 17th century France. But somebody's worked hard in the fields all day, going home and, and, and dancing, or just enjoying themselves for a few moments as a way of, of releasing the tension, adding a bit of color to their lives. So I would say... If you live in the kind of fantasy world novel, there are examples of that. That book we both read recently, Strange Rights, yes. has that section on Harry Potter fans. <laughs> and it, it's kind of weird, to be honest. <laughs> they really live in the world of Harry Potter. Now, that's weird, and I think that's wrong for Christians. Yeah. But the idea that you can enjoy a piece of human creativity mm. is entirely okay. It's like, it, it, to me, it's, it's no different to listening to a piece of music, a beautiful yeah. piece of music as a way or, of relaxing. Or making, an, or making an apple pie. Or making an apple pie. Uh, yeah, I don't make apple pies myself, but of course, <laughs> some listeners, I do make jam. You know, it's like jam. It's, it's that yeah. wonderful, creative It's aspect. something, you're right. It's something you do for the joy and the pleasure of it. In this case, yeah. a pleasure that's, that's legitimate. I, yeah. I, I think about how certain American evangelists were scandalized by Charles Spurgeon, whom they really admired from across the Atlantic. 
And um, I'm thinking of one, uh, Moody uh, in particular, who had made the trek over to see Spurgeon and uh, having been such an admirer of him, and he was just scandalized by the fact that Spurgeon could could enjoy a cigar or a glass of port on, on a Saturday night and do it, quote, you know, for the glory of God. That was incomprehensible yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for Moody. And a good example of that. But, but I would also add that every now and then, I mean, this summer I, I, I read a book on Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my, no, absolutely no right. edification involved whatsoever. <laughs> it was just to relax as I sit outside in the sun yeah. and read about Frank and the boys. Right. Uh, but literature on the whole, it's more than just entertainment. Yes, it is. One of the things I do at Grove in the, the humanities course I teach is I allow them, the students to get extra credit for reading one of three novels. And the, the three novels this, this year are going to be uh, Franz Kafka's The Trial, Albert Camus' The Plague, which is remarkably appropriate given the, the COVID situation, and Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. And in each of those works, you, you are able to vicariously live out particular situations and face particular moral, metaphysical, mm-hmm. or existential questions in a way that's sort of harmless, in that there's no risk to yourself in doing it, but you can mm-hmm. wrestle through. And Camus' The Plague really raises fundamental questions about the meaning of life, as does Kafka's trial. Power mm-hmm. and the Glory raises questions about, well, what does martyrdom look like? What is the glory of Christian martyrdom here and there? So I, I think literature fulfills, didactic makes it, is, is too wooden a word, but yeah. literature fulfills an enriching purpose mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. terms of our own existence and understanding of the depth and breadth of human existence. What, what yeah. would you say to that? Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's true. I think the best of books um, are going to uh, teach us some things and help us uh, see the world in ways that are, healthy and, and, and enriching and, and maybe not in always the ways that we would expect. So, so for instance, I think about uh, one particular guy who I, I really like to read. In fact, uh, Harold Bloom, the, the great Harold Bloom, uh, literary critic, legendary um, professor and literary critic, said that there are only uh, four American novelists worth reading. And he said, if, let me see if I remember, it was, it was Philip Roth, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pynchon, and Cormac McCarthy. I agree with him on Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, um, he's the only one of those four I've read, actually. I've, oh, no, I've read I've, Philip Roth as well. I've done two of the four. I've read I, some Philip I, Roth. I have read Philip Roth, his, his novel American Pastoral, which is about a family, but it's really a meditation on the 1960s. I think it's outstanding. Thomas Pynchon is almost completely and entirely unreadable. Um, I've tried to read Gravity's Rainbow twice, and I can't get even two chapters into it. That said, Cormac McCarthy, I love to read. And here's one of the reasons why I love to read. And this, this is where you go back to good literature, good books help you to, uh, to see and understand things. I, I would say McCarthy does that in a negative sense, in that M- McCarthy himself is an atheist. What I appreciate about him is that he writes like an honest atheist. Um, his books don't have redemption. And he has this very strong sense of what is wrong and not, and again, really in, in theological terms, he writes about evil in a way that, that is very consistent with the Bible in, in certain ways. And yet, because he does not have a concept for, for God, uh, there is ultimately uh, no redemption in his books. Now that can sound really sad. I get it. And, and it is, there is tragedy in his books that way. But the point is, is that, I don't have to sit down with him and say, okay, I'm going to really try to 
sharpen my biblical worldview here. I don't have to work that hard with him. Uh, as a Christian, I read him as a Christian, and and just as I go along, I see things where uh, things that are harmonized with what we know about the world in Scripture, in McCarthy's instance, a, a, a real strong sense that there is evil. And, and yet, as, as you read along, if you're reading as a Christian, and I hope you always read as a Christian, uh, you, you'll notice uh, the, 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 the unspeakable tragedy uh, of a world where there is no hope. Ultimately, no hope for atonement, no hope for redemption. I, I say that as one example of what of what good writing can do, and um, he's one who does that for me. Yeah, I read The Road. I remember oh. I've read a number of McCarthy books, but The yeah. Road was particularly devastating. Yes, I read and it shortly after my own father had died, and it was okay. not a good book to write. No, just no. after your dad has died, because because that's what the, the book is about. That's what the book's about. Oh yeah, yep. oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And that book, particularly, which won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, explores a theme in literature, which is explored going back to the classics. And I mean, and I don't mean the classics of Western Canada. I mean the you know the Greeks which is the relationship of fathers and sons. Mm. Why is it, Carl, that that theme you can trace all the way back to Greeks BC on up to our most contemporary of writers? Yeah. Why does that theme keep coming back? Well, I, I, I mean, I hate to say Freud got it right because I don't think he did <laughs> in terms of the Oedipus complex, but Freud certainly onto something, the father-son relationship. When we look at Martin Luther, of course, Eric Erickson's thesis on Luther is that really it's a dysfunctional father-son relationship that finds its expression in Luther's theology. And I, the evangelical approach to that, our, our typical approach, is to dismiss that as a relativizing of Luther's theology in an unacceptable way. And I, I'm deeply sympathetic to that, except for the fact that, hey, fathers and sons do have a powerful impact on each other. Mm-hmm. I remember you know, hearing about the death of my own father, one of, one of the weirdest reactions I, I had as I was making my way back home was this feeling that I didn't have to achieve anything anymore. And it was sort of weird. I thought, wow, wow yeah, I've lived most of my life. I've gone, I love my dad. We were very close. But I suddenly realized much of what I did in life, I did to please my dad because I wanted mm. to please my dad. I did. Yeah. And it was a kind of, wow, why do I have to get out of bed in the morning? Right, right. <laughs> so I think that the, the father-son relationship is powerful. And, and that book, The Road, brings it out mm-hmm. uh, very, very uh, powerfully uh, yeah. and beautifully. And D, you know, I would add to that D.H. Lawrence's book, Sons and Lovers. Mm. Is another exploration of the, the powerful relationship between there, really between a mother and the son. And again, allows you to to get glimpses of of the complexity of human existence without being damaged by it. Right. A, a contemporary writer who I've benefited a lot who explores this very same theme of the relationships within families, and particularly the relationship between fathers and sons is Marilyn Robinson. She, uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize, it's been over 10 years now, for her novel, uh, Gilead, which is a remarkably good book. And it's, it takes the form of, of a, an aging pastor's uh, journal um, in 1950s Iowa. And uh, in that uh, book, he is intervening, trying to deal with his best friend, who's a 
Presbyterian pastor in town, his best friend's prodigal son. Um, and then Robinson's follow-up book to that, which I just completed about a week ago, is called Home. And it takes up the story specifically of the retired Presbyterian pastor and his uh, uh, roguish prodigal son who returns home in his father's waning years. And it is deeply uh, moving. And, and as I read it again, I, I thought about my relationship with my father. I thought about my relationship with my sons. And these things are good for Christians. <laughs> these things are good for Christians to think on and to explore and to unpack. And a good book helps us to do that. And so yeah, I would yeah. say that alone, and not just that particular lesson, but, but the other ways that a good book helps us to do that is salutary then for, uh, for Christians. Yeah. And, and I want to be careful. I, I don't want to say sit down with a book like a physicist and try to uh, isolate each one of its constituent parts. Read for the enjoyment of reading. But just know that when you pick up a, a good book, you're going to gain uh, good lenses uh, to look at various portions of your life. A, a good book will, will do that for you. I don't know if John Grisham will do that for you, but books <laughs> will do that for you. Yeah, I've often thought that if, if ever I taught systematic theology, which nobody will ever ask me to do, but if ever I taught <laughs> systematic theology, I would include some novels on the mm. bibliography. Simply okay, like what? Uh, well, The Power and the Glory, for example, okay. would be one yep. that I'd put in. Graham Greene's story of a Catholic priest on the run uh -huh. in Mexico during the revolution. Uh, I think I would include... I've gone back and forth on this. Uh, uh, there's got to be something by Evelyn Waugh in there. I mean, first of all, okay. Evelyn Waugh is a, is a brilliant prose stylist, so you actually learn how to write Brides and reading Waugh. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd always thought the Bride's Head Revisited would be the, the default. Christ, uh, you know, unfortunately, the great Christian novelists, with the exception of Marilyn Robertson, tend to be Roman Catholic. That is true. But Bride's Head Revisited struck me as a book that raises all kinds of good religious questions. Mm -hmm. My friend, uh, our friend, friend of the program, Matt Frank, mm -hmm. uh, tells me that no, it's the Sword of Honor trilogy by Evelyn Waugh that is actually uh, more powerful. And I reread that this summer, and I think I agree with him, actually. The, the figure of Guy Crouchback, who's, he's, he's really too old, but he signs up and he joins uh, this, this regiment in the Second World War, and, and the war transforms him. It raises all kinds of interesting questions from a Christian perspective. So I'd probably put those in. Um, yeah. John Updike, of course, is perhaps the, the American novelist who's wrestled right. most with direct theological questions from a Protestant right. perspective. My issue with Updike is the books verge on the pornographic. He, he can be it, really sketchy. You know, yeah, I, I, without going into details yeah. or even His, naming books, I've read a couple of Updikes and I just couldn't. Yeah. Good conscience recommend yeah. those. Yeah, his descriptions can be uh, more graphic than than they than they need to be, and that's my yeah. my problem with Philip Roth yeah. as well. Yeah. Even though he's a brilliant yeah. writer, uh, there are portions in some of his books where I just am left wondering, you know, why in the world was that even necessary? Yeah. Uh, but well, whereas when you're dealing with Graham Greene and Evelyn War, yes, there's no. I mean, uh, Graham Greene's book, The End of the Affair, is another startling. Mm -hmm wrestling with the issue of infidelity and uh, Christianity. That, but there's nothing there that is salacious. Right, right. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so a couple of thoughts, you know, as, as folks who are, who are listening in, um, sometimes I think people approach the reading of literature. You know, we get kind of 
uh, motivated and say, okay, I'm going to finally start reading some really good meaty books, some of the classics, because I've never done that and it's time. And, you know, in high school, I only read the Cliff's Notes. I'm going to go back and I want to read some of these, these great books. And there's almost like a race against time to see if I can finish the 100 great books of the Western canon. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pace myself through crime and punishment, trying to hurry to get through that so I can get to, you know, sound in the fury here, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I would say, please guard yourself against that, uh, or you're not going to enjoy what you're, what you're reading. I would also say that before you sit down and pick up Brothers Karamazov, and go, okay, I'm going to read this baby. Um, Count the cost. A book like that is not easy to read. I I have friends who say that that's their favorite novel. It is not my favorite novel. There are portions of it that I like. There are portions of it that make great sermon illustrations too. (laughs) But some of those books in the Western canon are are difficult and be ready to put one aside if you're partway into it and it's just not clicking. It's a novel after all. You're going to be okay if you move on to the next one to see if you can really click with it. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're trying to read Crime and Punishment and it's just not doing it for you, then stop and go to Wuthering Heights, for instance, or Great Expectations. Try one of those, but read uh, for the pleasure of it. And, and if you're reading a great novel and you're getting no pleasure and no joy out of it, I, I would say it's okay to close that and, and to try something else because I don't want to lose the the do this at least in part for the pleasure of it. I don't want to lose that because I think there's a good way to understand that as, as Christians, that we're an eschatological people. We're a people that, that, that live leaning forward to the glory and the eternal godly pleasures to come. And I would say that that's one of the reasons why we still make apple pie in a fallen world, uh, because we do believe there's a, a good category for good soul pleasing delights and we can actually taste of some of that in that life. Am I, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I reaching too far here, Carl? No, I, I, I'm a big, I tend to think of myself as a somewhat lazy person <laughs> on the grounds that I, I read what I like. I, yeah. you know, my life has been built around writing on things that I enjoy writing on and reading mm. books that I enjoy reading. Maybe I've, I, well, I have, you know, I'll say I've had a privileged life, but yeah. I've had the luxury to be able to do that. Uh, but I would say life's too short to get too bored. I tried to read the Brothers Karamazov a couple of times. <laughs> I got about page fifty. It, it's a killer, and it I'm is. deeply, I'm deeply skeptical of anybody who says it's their favourite novel. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Jim Packer, I'll let Doctor Packer have that one because I've got huge respect for him. But nobody else, everybody else is lying. <laughs> so I would say, yeah, read, read for pleasure. Don't necessarily read easy stuff. Right. There's nothing wrong with reading, you know, the stuff that I'll read on an airplane or if I ever sat on a beach, which I never do, what I would read sitting on a beach (laughs) is is, not necessarily serious stuff. Right, right. Uh, And there are what George Orwell called good, bad books out there. It's sort of edifying. It's particularly well written. Mm -hmm. It's good, bad stuff to read. But I would say on the whole, focus on great books that, that interest you and try to find books that a little off the beaten track. I mean, I was, as we were doing this, I was thinking of one of the books that made a huge impact on me. And I think it's probably quite important given the cultural tensions we're seeing in our world at the moment is Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Invisible Man. You know, if, if you're a white person and you want to have a little taste of what it's mm-hmm. like uh, to be a person of color 
in, in, in the United States than I think Ralph Ellison. That book, uh, it terrified me at points. Mm. I mean, there were some mm. very uh, sinister dimensions, some very believable dimensions to the story he told. So, yeah. you know, literature, I think, as you pointed to at the start, Todd, is it's a way of stepping outside of your own cultural zone. I try to read books from other nations if I can. I've not read any Chinese novels, but I've read, I try to read German novels, Russian novels, French novels, Italian novels. Uh, it's, it's a good way of trying to grasp other course, South American novels, the magical realism, of course, are also interesting. It's, it's a way of expanding your cultural horizon. And again, from a Christian perspective, reminding us that while we are part of the universal church, we are also rooted in our individual cultures and we can benefit from getting the insights and the perspectives of people from other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I love um, Thomas Hardy, as you know, but one of the things I love about Thomas Hardy is he speaks of my world, right. that, that English class system, yeah. uh, and the, the, the wrestling between the cities and the rural and the rural areas in England. That's the world I grew up in. Love mm -hmm. Thomas Hardy from that perspective, but I can't just spend my life reading Thomas Hardy. Oh my goodness! Being confirmed in my own prejudices. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, how depressing that would be. My one criticism <laughs> of Wuthering Heights is it has a semi-happy ending. It would be much better <laughs> to have ended halfway through when they were all dead or alcoholics. You know? <laughs> okay. So inevitably, inevitably, then, uh, we, and we've heard a few recommendations. You know, people are going to say, "Okay, so you know, what are your what are your favorite uh, novels?" And for me, you know, I mean. I, I have a set of, of authors that I, I really kind of go to a lot. And I'm a big fan of uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, who, who wrote mostly short stories. And I just think he was a brilliant, I think his prose is just beautiful. I, I love the um, sentimentality in a lot of his stories, to be quite honest, because I think he doesn't overdo it. I think he, he hits it right on. Um, I've mentioned Cormac McCarthy. Um, Mark Helprin is one of the great um, I think contemporary American novelists working out there. I've mentioned Marilyn Robinson, uh, Gilead, Home. There's a third in that series called Lila, and then the fourth is coming out now very soon called Jack, which really focuses primarily on this prodigal son character, and I'm looking forward to that. John Williams, who wrote uh, Stoner and uh, Butcher's Crossing and Augustus, uh, are his three great novels, and I would commend all three of those um, to anyone. They are... They're brilliant books. And then um, another guy I read, everything he, he comes out with is Ron Hansen, who wrote primarily historical fiction, primarily from the American West, not exclusively, but, you know, he also wrote a novel about uh, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins and the poem that he wrote about that steamship that went down near the mouth of the Thames. Uh, and I know that's a story you're familiar with, Carl, because it was such a huge thing in 19th century England and uh, nuns drowned upon it. And, uh, but, but, but Hansen's a, a brilliant uh, writer and employs a lot of these kind of moral categories. John Gardner, an American novelist uh, who, who wrote what he called moral fiction uh, because he saw in all fiction, a more, uh, that good fiction had to have a moral structure to it. So anyway, those are, those are some names to throw out there. Uh, Carl, we know that you like the depressing and dark and bleak stuff like Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy. Uh, yes. Emily Bronte, like the Bronte mm -hmm. sisters. Uh, mm -hmm. Good stuff. Uh, some Dickens. Uh, I think Pickwick Papers is one of the great comic novels. Uh, I think Hard Times is probably his greatest novel, a searing indictment of the Industrial Revolution uh, in 
written. I, I, I don't read so many contemporary novelists, uh, I mm. guess. I, I like 20th century novels, but Flann O'Brien, The Third Policeman, Kafka's novels, and Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. I think of, of the great American novelists, Raymond Chandler, it, just for the one-liners. It's just, <laughs> it's just pure gold. If you're looking for some witty quotations, uh, Raymond Chandler. So those would be my, oh, and of course, as I said, Evelyn Warren Graham Greene. Yeah, those yeah. are my recommendations. Yeah. Um, well, I, before I close this, I want to read a paragraph that I think is, uh, it represents, this is probably my favorite paragraph in American literature. It's from A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean. And I would say, if you're a man and have not read a river runs through it, then you're lacking something. You've got That's to me. get it. I'm, I'm lacking something. Well, A River Runs Through It is a short novel. It's about 100 pages long, and I think it's one of the great works of America. Listen to this. Listen to this. Uh, it, it's the closing paragraph of the novel. And he writes this, Of course, now I am too old to be much of a fisherman. And now, of course, I usually fish the big waters alone, although some friends think I shouldn't. Like many fly fishermen in western Montana, where the summer days are almost arctic in length, I often do not start fishing until the cool of the evening. Then in the arctic half-light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul and memories and the sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. Now that's good. That's good writing. That final line, I am haunted by waters. When I read that, I just teared up. I could not help it. I was so moved, particularly coming at the end of this great story, again, about what? About fathers and sons about struggling through theological matters. It's, uh, it's wonderful stuff. Well, listen, we, we're, we're glad that you joined us uh, today for Mortification of Spin. We do have a gift to give uh, to a few of our, our lucky listeners. If you'll head over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win one of several really neat little books that uh, uh, Leland Riken and I think Phil, his son, has helped write, and, and they're called Christians in the Classics, and what they do in these, in these short books is take a handful of, of some of the great works of, of the Western canon and, and, and give a summary of the book, its main themes, and then do some theological uh, triage with it, some, some theological reflection with it, and I, I have several copies. I think they're wonderful, and um, you can get a taste for that by winning a copy uh, from our website if you'll go there. And if you're so inclined, the Mortification Spin is a, is a listener-supported podcast, and if you'd like a, to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can certainly do that while you're there. Well, we've enjoyed this time with you. Hope you've enjoyed it as well, and we look forward to being back with you again at the Mortification Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. 
We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Does that work? I thought you were going to go on the daddy theme some more. I was going to like, uh, oh. uh, daddy, oh. don't you walk so fast. Uh, <laughs> that would work. Daddy um, wasn't there, Austin Powers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the reason why I like Austin Powers so much is I think that more than anything else, it gives us a window into what real life is like among the British. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, how, and how they really are in their natural environment. Teeth and the whole nine, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, the whole thing. For generations, Christians have celebrated holidays and seasons with special songs. Prolific author and professor Leland Riken invites you to slow down and savor the well-turned phrases of your favorite hymns in his new book, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year. Now available from PNR Publishing, 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year is a wonderfully devotional and poetic study featuring memorable hymns for the New Year, Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas. As an English professor, Leland provides historical background and literary analysis for each hymn, finishing each with a scripture reading. 40 Favorite Hymns for the Christian Year from PNR Publishing, your source for Christian books that provide clear, engaging, fresh, and insightful applications of Reformed theology to real life. Visit prpbooks.com.